Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm also doing something I don't do normally, which is drinking a Coke Zero at oh, 9 a.m. in the morning. Wow. Save it for the pod. Save it. Oh, no, no. Oh, wait. We are recording. This is the pod. Sorry. 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 I pod. suck. I suck. This is the pod. These, <laughs> morning, these morning. morning recordings oh. really are hard, guys. Look, my little kid is still on West Coast time, and so it was up till 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Somehow, which doesn't make doesn't correlate the West Coast time. It's not like he was staying up till one thirty in the morning on the West Coast, but whatever. He's not in a rational place, unfortunately, and therefore neither am I. So I'm drinking a Coke at nine a.m. How are you guys doing? Better than that. Congrats, Quinta. So <laughs> it's happy a low bar. <laughs> it's a low bar today. Look, my life is in shambles right now, but at least I have this. Well, Ugh, somehow you whatever. managed to lose your microphone stand. People, people can't see. Sadly, our, our listeners can't it. see this. Like yes, Quinta is in this very complex yoga pose in order to keep <laughs> this microphone near her mouth. Yeah, I don't know, guys. I don't know where it wandered off to. Maybe my dog took it. I got nothing. This is the ultimate feat of podcasting endurance. <laughs> like at this point, about an, at our at one hour mark, you're going to be like shaking, sweat pouring down your face. Yeah, well, it's a good trying to hold the microphone. Workout. Exactly. Those, those, you got to work those podcasting muscles. It's the it's the CrossFit podcast crossover. PodFit, where it's just like, you know, your underarms and your incredibly thick neck. That's the plan. That's, that's where you build <laughs> muscles. Man, we're we're all in rare form this morning. Yeah. This would be a weird one, guys. <laughs> I, I just want to say I'm really enjoying um, that Kara is keeping her video on because I can just see her facial expression. And now I know exactly what she thinks of us. <laughs> As we record yeah. this weekly podcast, it's like the cringeometer. It's as awesome. We can, we can judge like how badly do we need to redo that last bit. The answer is a lot. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Rereasoned. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two other regular co-hosts for the first time after a few weeks away with Alan Rosenstein. Hello, I am back. I am back from COVID land, sort of. I'm halfway back from COVID land and delighted to be back on the pod. You're still sounding delightfully gravelly, and I like it. We we need more of that. We need more of that kind of bass bringing to the podcast. You know, you you like it. My wife likes it. It's a it's a good sound. There we go. And with our other co-host, of course, Quinta Jurassic. Hello, Quinta. Hello. Well, we are here for what we are calling the Coke Party Edition in honor of my beverage of choice after a night of re-sleep training my child and a 9 a.m. recording session. Uh, so this one's going to get a little bit weird, folks, but we are excited to have you here today as we talk through some of the week's big national security news. Our first topic for the day, 1,001 Arabian flights. President Biden is conducting his first official visit to the Middle East this week with a stated goal of building ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, beginning with more direct airline routes. Why this sudden high-profile engagement, and what does Biden hope it will yield? Topic two, Luce Bannon. Trump ally Steve Bannon has signaled that he may be willing to speak to the January 6th committee after all. 
just as his contempt trial for refusing to do so gets underway and the disagreement between the former president's lawyers and his own regarding whether he can invoke executive privilege and over what goes public. What does this all mean for his legal future? And topic three, crossing the international hate line. FBI Director Chris Wray and his UK counterpart recently made a joint statement on the growing international ties between violent right-wing nationalist movements in various Western countries. What could this mean for counterterrorism strategy moving forward? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. So President Biden uh, will be traveling across the Middle East, uh, starting in Israel and ending up in Saudi Arabia. I think it's a high profile trip for for a number of reasons, um, among other things that he's taking it at a sort of tumultuous time in domestic U.S. politics. Um, He's also arriving in Israel right after the prime ministership has been handed over from uh, Naftali Bennett to Yair Lapid under the existing power sharing agreement. Um, And of course, will arrive in Saudi Arabia during a time in which the United States very much needs Saudi Arabia's help uh, in terms of oil prices, thanks to the Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, But also, as we've talked about before in the podcast, uh, the United States with relationship with Saudi Arabia is not a a smooth sailing necessarily. Um, And Biden has also received a fair amount of criticism for this decision. So notably, he kind of previewed uh, his his grand tour in an opinion piece in the Washington Post. Um, I noticed while reading it that the Post has a a little box that shows up when you click on this piece, uh, uh, suggesting a counterpoint that you might read after reading Biden's piece written by Fred Ryan, who's the Washington Post's publisher, sort of the institutional face of the Post, uh, saying, uh, and this is the title of of Ryan's op-ed, Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia erodes our moral authority. The Post, of course, has particular uh, interests here, given that Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, writer who was murdered by the Saudi government, was a Washington Post columnist. So I will say I did find Biden's decision to publish this column in the Post uh, to be particularly interesting. So as always, this trip raises up or cues up a a number of questions. Um, Scott, I mean, to to start off with, let's let's start at the end with Saudi Arabia. Is there any way around the fact that Biden's trip is going to, as Ryan says, uh, erode the United States's moral authority here? Is it just something that has to happen or was there a way that the administration could have handled this better? It's a really hard question. I mean, as we talked about a little bit last week, the administration has kept Saudi Arabia at an arm's length compared to its predecessors. Uh, particularly uh, the Trump administration obviously had a very close relationship very early on with Saudi Arabia. Uh, The Bush administration famously had a close relationship with Saudi Arabia. The Obama administration, you know, some tensions, but close cooperating, coordinating relationship uh, over a range of strategic issues. Um, And so, you know, there's been this longstanding relationship that the Biden administration has been cooler towards, in part because it really hasn't been a focus. The Middle East region generally hasn't been a focus of its efforts throughout its time in office thus far. Um, but that's beginning to change a little bit, or at least there's a sense that they there's a need to indicate that the administration is still engaged in the Middle East in various regards. Um, part of that has to do with the JCPOA, JCPOA negotiations, the Iran nuclear deal negotiations, which are 
appear to be in the process of falling apart, but that there's still some effort to salvage or have some sort of follow-up arrangement for whatever comes of that. There will need to be regional coordination on, and the Saudis are going to play a major role in that, as are the Israelis. Um, there's lots of issues that they, there is some engagement that needs to happen on. And, and in a way, this is the first time in several months that the administration has had bandwidth that it might be able to turn to them because we, of course, had the Ukraine conflict. And before that, we had the Afghanistan withdrawal and all of the fallout that came with that. Um, so it's been a very busy time in office for the Biden administration. Um, and my sense is that this is something that's been kind of on the checklist for a long time. And this is the opportunity for it to come up when they feel like they can engage on some of these items before it before they hit a, a, an important phase, particularly around the Iran nuclear negotiations. Um, can you avoid losing your moral authority? I mean, that's a the concept of moral authority is a little bit of a subjective one, right? Um, states don't act with total moral uh, autonomy. Uh, states have to represent a wide range of interests and can't act in the way we might act as individuals in a particular circumstance. And here, you know, the simple case that Biden makes in his op-ed, and I have to admit, I, I find it kind of persuasive, even though I'm not happy about it, is that Saudi Arabia plays a really important role for a lot of U.S. interests in the region and worldwide, not just oil prices, which, of course, Biden administration is trying to bring down uh, in the wake of the Ukraine conflict, although they've kind of started already going down a bit already on their own, um, or at least consumer gas prices have, uh, the, the, but also on a whole range of other issues. And Saudi Arabia's leadership, there are no signs it's changing anytime soon. Um, so you need that sort of diplomatic engagement. Now, you can do that below the head of state, the head of state level. That's what we've been doing with Saudi Arabia for a while now. Um, and, and that's frankly likely to be the continued relationship that we're going to have in in the on uh, mass like in most interactions i don't think we're going to see joe biden walk holding hands with mbs down the runway like we used to see George, president george w bush do on a fairly regular basis when visiting but the will, kingdom. It, will he put his hand on a mysterious glowing orb yes that is the question that is the real question i mean that is a photo we will we will we will all go down swinging for i have no doubt uh but i somehow think they're gonna avoid that photo <laughs> Uh, but if not, who knows? Who knows what they have planned? Um, but it's a tricky balance to strike. Uh, you know, I, in my mind, what I suspect is happening here is that they see some face to face engagement here as a big chip they can play and that they're making, frankly, a lot of asks of Saudi Arabia. They want to push for normalization with Israel, uh, not full normalization, but steps towards normalization, both to kind of give a win um, to the Lapid Bennett government, I think, uh, to underscore the commitment to Israel. They've been trying really hard to limit international pressure on that coalition so that it has a chance to survive and they avoid a return of Netanyahu in government, um, which is always a concern. Of course, we just heard the Israelis announce snap elections, not snap elections, announce elections um, that they'll be holding in the next few months. So who knows what the fate of the Israeli government and the current coalition or any any members of the current coalition is going to be. Um, but so they're trying to get a win for that in terms of some steps towards normalization with Saudi Arabia. They want Saudi Arabia to adjust its gas prices. Those are two pretty big asks. And this is a big chip they have to play in, in favor there. I don't think we're going to see photo apps. I don't think we're going to see a very warm engagement, but we're going to see direct leader to leader engagement. And that's significant. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Well, it's 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 a different difficult balance to strike. I'm not sure, you know, using uh, using that a little bit strategically is necessarily bad. The thing is, you don't want to cheapen it. You don't want to give it away for free. And and the permanent, the tenor of this relationship has to permanently, I think, be pretty different um, from the baseline of what it was prior to the Khashoggi killing uh, and, you know, th for much of the prior 20 years. It's just, you know, 
that doesn't mean you can't depart from that new baseline. Uh, I think that's what this this particular case is, um, precisely because they need Saudi Arabia on some of these items. Yeah, I, I, I almost entirely agree with Scott here. I, I don't find talk of moral authority all that useful. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I, I I think a lot. I think some some of the awkwardness here, honestly, just is because Joe Biden published this op-ed in the Washington Post, and then of course the Washington Post has to respond because it's the Washington Post's former employee. Um, I don't really understand why Biden couldn't have published this in uh, in the New York Times and avoided that small bit of embarrassment um, and awkwardness. Obviously, the moral questions would still uh, would still uh, uh, require him to go. You know, obviously, the moral questions about him going to Saudi Arabia would would uh, persist. Um, but I, I'm with Scott that I don't see a huge alternative here. I mean, you know, I think if if your concern, as I think it is a fair one, that Saudi Arabia is fundamentally an autocratic state, uh, not even fundamentally, just is an illiberal autocratic state, and that's not going to change anytime soon, um, then you you have to make some some hard choices about whether or not you're going to continue in the long term supporting that or if you want, you know, massively increase the amount of oil and gas drilling in the United States and uh, build a bunch of nuclear power plants and and you know try to uh, do as much as you can to avoid any sort of dependence on Saudi Arabia. Of course, that has its own uh, problems. I, I'm just not sure that moral authority is a particularly useful or practical lens of viewing this situation. Um, uh, and so you know, they're, they're doing what they have to do. Quinta, let me, let me put the question to you. I mean, you are the person who I think is the closest to a journalist of the three of us. And, and perhaps more importantly in this particular case, like thinks of yourself as a journalist, maybe more than the three of us do. Yeah, I, I am so, a journalist. Thank you very much. Scott. Well, I say, I only, I know I caveat it because of you, because like nominally we have all sorts of different, we have a very similar job hell? on paper, but in practice we do it very different ways. And I think self-conception is part of it. Like I would never describe myself as a journalist, but I do something very different and you take a different approach to it. That's the only reason I would, that was the caveating and nothing about reflecting about you and your work. I I agree. You're a journalist. So as a Listeners, journalist. Listeners, I will take this up outside Can this later. please, I would like this to be a long running gag where just every fourth episode, <laughs> we're like, so Quinta, as someone who's like maybe one day occasionally sort of close to, but obviously not really a journalist, what do you think about this? And just see Quinta's face explode. <laughs> and that can be the thumbnail. That can be the thumbnail for, for the, for the. <laughs> as a journalist then, as a journalist, <laughs> You know, how do you see this entering into kind of the tenor or incentive structure around uh, journalism, the sense of like support for global journalism? That's something that every American administration gives big lip service to. Democrats tend to give it a little more than Republicans a little vocally. I think the Biden administration coming in, there's a lot of talk about it in uh, campaign days about really emphasizing the importance of journalism because the Trump administration had such a hostile relationship toward journalism. But there's an international element of that, too. And here we're coming on not just the you know Khashoggi killing, which has this years long shadow that is casting over these relationships, but also the more much more recent killing of Shireen Abu Akla, a U.S. citizen, Palestinian American journalist uh, in Israel, um, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, that the Biden administration has found itself mixed into the investigation of recently released some like half exculpatory, half uh, you know putting some degree of blame on Israeli soldiers' statement based off their investigation of I believe the ammunition involved. So you know what does it mean if these issues aren't raised, or how do they need to be raised to help make journalists feel like they have the support of the Biden administration 
in investigating actions surrounding these international, uh, these governments that may or may not, depending on how you interpret the facts, in Israel's case, uh, and certainly seem to be in Saudi Arabia's case, taking hostile action against journalists? I think it's an excellent question. And I'm glad you mentioned Shreen Abel Akhla because that was, I think, a, another important issue to, to touch on given uh, Biden's visit to, to Israel. Um, it is hard for me to imagine that the White House placed this op-ed in the post not thinking about the fact that it was putting it in the post and the fact that it would probably run alongside something like Fred Ryan's uh, piece in response. I read that as something that was done intentionally, not necessarily as a screw you, which I think is honestly how it would have read if uh, President Trump, for example, had had published a piece like this in the Post, um, but more as a gesture of look, I know that this looks bad to you, to the community of journalists more broadly. I'm going to take this opportunity to try to explain my reasoning with to you in your community as a gesture of good faith. Um, that is my read. I, I don't know. Um, I, I'll leave it up to the listeners whether or not the opinion piece is compelling in that direction. I think it's also important to note that the Post has kind of had uniquely bad luck, really, when it comes to press freedom. So, which I, to some extent, honestly, is a reflection of how much work uh, they did. And and Fred Hyatt, the former editorial page editor who passed away recently, did in in building out the global opinion section and getting voices from all over the world. So that was the section that uh, Khashoggi wrote for of uh, Vladimir Karamurza, who is a Russian dissident. I, wrote, I think still writes for the section, uh, currently from prison, where he's been imprisoned for speaking out against the Russian war in Ukraine. Um, Austin Tice, who's a freelancer who wrote for the Post, uh, is currently imprisoned in Syria. So the paper kind of has a unique vantage point here. Um, I do think it's also, you know, there is a way to say everyone's kind of playing their particular role here, Right. Um, as Scott and Alan, as you both have pointed out, uh, the United States government necessarily has different considerations that it, it kind of has to weigh here. Uh, the Post institutionally also has its own considerations. And so, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure that Ryan's piece is, is deeply felt, to be clear, and I, I don't mean to suggest that anyone is being insincere here, but I think there's a certain amount of... Uh, there's a certain extent to which everyone is kind of playing their role where Biden is saying, look, I know you don't like this, but this is why I feel I have to do this. And that it is also appropriate and right for the post institutionally in the form of Ryan to come out and say, we think that this is inappropriate. We think that, you know, it is, it is sending the wrong message and here is what we would like Biden to do instead. So Ryan suggests that, uh, that Biden should meet with uh, Saudi dissidents, for example, to send a message about U S care for human rights. But I think it's a really difficult tangle. Um, and I mean, I do think that, you know, this goes back to one of uh, Alan's uh, favorite <laughs> topics, which has to do with just, you know, how much good faith uh, we extend to the executive, right? Like, I don't I don't think it is true, as I said, that, you know, if, if Trump placed an op-ed like this in the Post, it would have a very different ring to it, even if every single word were the same, because we all know that Trump had deep disrespect for journalists, joked all the time about curtailing press freedoms, attacking journalists, killing journalists. Um, the Biden administration doesn't have like a super rosy relationship with the press, but it is 
leaps and bounds better than that. And so given that the administration necessarily has these other sort of political and international considerations that need to go into play, we're sort of left with, once again, the same question at bottom, which is just how much do you trust the person who is in power? Um, And I think that's a difficult question. I think that's I think that's completely right. You know, the the one thing I'll add here um, to that response is that there's always a competition here between the public engagement around issues like this, particularly human rights issues and the private engagement. Um, you know, people are very skeptical of the idea that anything actually happens behind closed doors around a variety of issues like human rights press freedoms kind of fitting into that sort of bucket, um, and particularly in the Middle East, where, frankly, a lot of governments have problematic aspects of their records, very problematic aspects of their records around this issue set. Um, you know, that, in my experience, is not entirely true. Um, the United States government really does engage people on these issues. Um, I think the WikiLeaks leaks, part of the reason they were so damaging is because they revealed the extent to which the U.S. government engages with the various opposition groups and human rights groups and, and victims of human rights issues. Usually there is a political officer, if not multiple political officers, like really committed specifically to human rights issues in most political sections and most of the at least medium to larger size U.S. embassies. Um, and there are people with that as part of their portfolio in the smaller ones. Um, and so there is engagement around these issues. Um, you know, there is often an inclination to make it a, a more behind the scenes engagement precisely because the goal is to tamp down and prevent, you know, bolder actions that might be undertaken, more damaging actions, um, as opposed to simply preserving moral legitimacy, to to borrow Fred Ryan's language about this. Um, And in some ways, I think that can be justified or is justifiable. Um, You look, you can see what happens when an administration gives a kind of a wink and a nod to a government like Saudi Arabia to do whatever they want, because that's what they got in 2017 from the Trump administration. And it got real wild, real fast, right? Imprisoning members of the royal families, blockading neighboring countries, uh, engaging in all sorts of human rights things. And then ultimately, the Khashoggi killing is the thing that began to force the Trump administration to reverse its policy. Maybe not the first thing, but the thing that really pushed that policy into the point of saying this is not sustainable. Um the constant pressure on these issues actually does make a difference and it, it does happen to an extent, but it's really unsatisfying. And that doesn't mean it's the higher enough of a priority. And there are issues where it doesn't happen as much, where it can be compromised a lot, um, particularly when you see kind of fudging uh, around facts or a, a kind of mudding of the factual record about what happened. Um, I think that can often be a sign that there's not as much serious engagement around something. I think that's the, you know, I don't know what the actual facts were, but that I found out a little bit concerning in the Abu Akhla case is that it seems that the factual record is very muddy. The Biden administration hasn't really helped clarify it despite being directly involved. And that's a problem. Uh, now, maybe they can't. I uh, mean, there's legitimate reasons for that. But at the same time, you know, it's just it, it hasn't led to a super clear policy in that domain. And it could be clear. But again, it's in the situ- situation, the Biden administration, where it's trying to bolster and maintain very visibly good relations with the current government there, frankly, I think probably to bolster its case domestically uh, and and to build a relationship with Israel that um, isn't as colored by the unique Netanyahu uh, Trump dynamics of the last couple of years. Um, So, you know, the op-ed that's in the Washington Post, it reads not super persuasively because it's not a super coherent case. It, it is essentially a bullet list of like, here are all the interests we have to kind of cover in the Middle East. And here's how we're kind of doing something for all of them, but not doing everything for any one of them. Um, that is so often what 
international diplomacy looks like, especially in the Middle East, where there are such complicated dynamics and complicated um, interests at play. And so, you know, I, I'm not surprised to see it this way, uh, see the op-ed lay things out the way it did. I actually, that tracked pretty much what I expected. And I'm not convinced it's completely wrong, particularly for an administration that does not see the Middle East as a priority and, and doesn't want to commit political resources to really moving the ball uh, in a major direction on anything. It really is. Its goal is to maintain its stability and provide opportunities um, for, you know, progress and, and small, small P progress on a variety of fronts um, that stability can provide. And from that perspective, you know, it, it makes a maybe persuasive case, but it's not a very satisfying case. Yeah, Scott, I, I, I want to ask you another question, and specifically about the Israel part of this trip, and not really about the Israel part of the trip as much as just the Biden administration's approach to Israel generally, right? So there's a perception, I think correctly, that the Trump administration was about as pro-Israel, or at least pro a certain right-wing view of Israel. Um, as Pro-Likud. Sort of yes, yes, pro-Likud. Pro I think that's a nice way of putting it. Um, uh, and, and then one thing that's been notable uh, is that the Biden administration, though, you know, in some sense, a bit of a correction hasn't really fundamentally changed that approach, right? And so from an Israel perspective, this is a, a, a very, very nice uh, period in Israeli-U.S. Uh, relations. And I'm curious, you, you know, what you ascribe that to. You know, in other words, do you think that this continuation of the Biden administration, of the Trump administration's approach to Israel is a a conscious decision, or it's really a reflection that Israel itself, through a number of its own initiatives over the last you know, five, six years, has so improved its position within the Middle East and with respect to a lot of its uh, uh, neighbors, um, especially given that there's a uh, you know, surprising amount of coalition between um, Israel and a lot of Middle East countries in opposing Iran, um, that really the Biden administration, perhaps for the reasons you mentioned of trying to spend less time and energy in the Middle East is sort of going along with Israel's increasingly prominent position in, in, in the region. And that is sort of part of what explains its, its hesitance to um, kind of cut back on the Trump administration's support for you know, certain more right-wing elements of Israeli policy. It's a really good question. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's been a lot more continuity than people might have expected between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Um, particularly, we've seen you know no effort to return the embassy to Tel Aviv. The U.S. embassy remains in Jerusalem. There has been an effort to try and rebuild a direct dip diplomatic channel to the Palestinians, but they have not reestablished the consulate in Jerusalem, um, in part because that would require permission, most likely from local authorities, um, practically, if not kind of international law wise, international law is a little more ambiguous, practically, like if Israelis don't want you staffing or buying land, they're not going to let you do it. <laughs> um, uh, and they kind of control the cards in that regard. Um, and so, uh, but they've restored a kind of direct channel to the State Department um, through the Palestinian Affairs Office. Um, it has a new name that uh, I can't, I think it is the Palestinian Affairs Office is the new name. It used to be the negotiating unit. Um, uh, if I recall correctly. So, you know, they're they're taking these steps. And and really, it has seemed to me uh, like the goal of the Biden administration thus far has been to rebuild U.S.-Palestinian relations to kind of a, you know, status quo anti-Trump, right? Uh, saying, we're going to go back to a situation where we have meaningful diplomatic relations. We do provide foreign assistance to the Palestinians directly. We support Palestinian-Israeli security cooperation, which took a major hit inadvertently by Congress when it enacted um, a particularly problematic law, the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act that I, I wrote a lot about back in the day. Um, 
that uh, we're going to try and restore all these efforts and then bring things back to that sort of stage of where they were at 2016. That itself was a really problematic stage for a lot of people. Among other things, it meant that Israel was still taking and has continued to take these kind of incremental steps, and not always so incremental, but but gra- pro- progressive steps to assert more and more control over territory that the international community considers part of the West Bank and, and part of, you know, at least very credibly claimed by Palestinians being something that should be part of its state eventually, if and when the two-state solution amounts to anything. The Israelis keep kind of chipping away at what that means. Meanwhile, um, they really control big swaths of the West Bank, so the Palestinian Authority has trouble internally kind of governing. Um, uh, and on top of that, you know, you are uh, just see this kind of rhetoric turning, not as aggressively as it did in the Netanyahu phase, where you really saw a lot of direct talk about annexation. You did see, you know, uh, more formal action on Golan Heights and on a lot of other issues saying like, oh, we're solidifying the Israeli position here with the Trump administration support. Um you know, but you haven't seen quite like that much of a lean in, but you've still seen the the gradual steps of this outcome where Israel is asserting more and more control over this territory that's supposed to, in theory, uh, be going to the Palestinians. And this is why a lot of people say the two-state solution isn't a realistic solution, even though all the political actors are still bought into it now. It, it's rapidly going to the point where it's, where it's a failure. And, you know, that is a point where Israel puts itself, in my view, at least in a really difficult position. Like, the only reason Israel can get away with not allowing Palestinians to vote or giving them political rights or giving them the full basket of rights of other people in line with modern human rights standards is because they say, well, but they're really part of a separate polity um, or they're you know, part of a, an occupied territory, although that, that becomes very controversial and, and, and fuzzy on a lot of different lines. But they're essentially in a different political category. When the two-state solution stops being a possibility at the end of the horizon and, and it's arguably already stopped being a possibility. If not, it's very close to, to the kind of the line where that's no longer a credible claim. Then what does Israel say? You know, how do you say with human rights standards that we have a huge part of our population in our borders that we're not giving full political and legal rights, um, which Israel doesn't want to do because it wants to maintain its identity as a dominantly Jewish state. Um, it puts itself in a really difficult position. And so, you know, this was something that a lot of Israeli politicians were very sensitive to. This is a reason why, you know, they withdrew from Gaza. There was an effort to withdraw from West Bank uh, in you know the 90s and the 2000s, um, that there was this effort to say, we're going to actually seriously begin to establish a two-state process because it, a one-state process doesn't actually play in our favor. And then that never got, that, that option got kind of pulled back over generations of political leaders who, who for domestic political reasons, found it better to say, well, we're going to talk about a two-state solution, but really we're going to keep undermining it. And I, I just not try to actually get somewhere productive there. At some point, you can't just try and rebuild a relationship with the Palestinians and think that gets to a productive state. But I suspect for the Biden administration's perspective, they're saying, look, we don't have the bandwidth for this right now. Let's just try and get back to a point where we can have diplomatic engagements on both sides and we'll deal with that situation when it comes. And that's not unusual. Like every frankly, presidential administration um, basically deals with Israel-Palestinian issues right as it's about to leave office and tries to come up with some sort of legacy deal that never really amounts to much. Um, so I suspect we'll see a lot more talk about this in, over the next two years, particularly as the Biden administration's legislative agenda uh, begins to fail and they're looking for foreign policy victories. Um, and, uh, you know, the odds of making success is, is pretty low because at that point, you may be headed out of office and your commitments have that much less credibility. Uh, but it's this kind of vicious cycle. William Quant, a kind of a guy who's a former NSC staffer, wrote a great book about this in the 90s, making this thesis. And I think it's held up really well um, since then. Um, so, yeah, long story short, I, you know, I'm just not sure we we're, we're likely to see much progress on this front. But 
you really, I think that the logic for the Biden administration at this point is just very low hanging fruit. They're, they have a very limited goals and, and evaluating their actions against those goals. I think they've actually been fairly successful. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Moving on to a question about some influential and problematic figures overseas to some influential and problematic figures at home, at least once upon a time, let's talk about one of our favorite friends here at Rational Security, one Mr. Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, former Trump administration advisor, close ally of former President Trump, is, of course, on trial for contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with subpoenas issued by the January 6th committee. And that trial got underway this week against the backdrop of two pretty significant developments. On the one hand, Bannon came forward and said, in fact, after months and months of stonewalling, he actually is willing to testify to the January 6th committee, the scope of which is a little unclear. Uh, There's an inclination indicated that he preferred to do so publicly, uh, if possible, uh, which kind of echoed a condition of Stuart Rhodes, the founder of Oath Keepers, who also said he'd testify before the January 6th committee, but only publicly. I suspect this might be a little bit part of a new strategy that people are settling on about how to try and undermine legitimacy, January 6th committee. Um, But the committee, to to our knowledge, has not taken Bannon up on that yet. And then we saw an interesting filing come forward in court relating to correspondence between Bannon's lawyers and Trump's lawyers, making clear that there was daylight between what President Trump, or at least his lawyers, suggested Bannon could invoke executive privilege for uh, and what Bannon actually tried to invoke executive privilege for, or the extent to which he argued executive privilege allowed him to completely disregard engaging the subpoena process. And this kind of culminated with this offer from Bannon indicating that President Trump had decided that he would waive whatever executive privilege he could assert over whatever Bannon would want to testify on. Although, again, I think the scope of that is a little unclear to this day. Quinta, you are, of course, watching this trial very closely, uh, as are many of our lawfare colleagues. Tell us a little bit about how significant these developments are and what we think they mean for the trajectory both of Bannon's trial and of the broader January 6th investigation. So there are a lot of different things going on here. I should say that the trial has actually not started yet. Um, we're still in pre-trial proceedings. The trial is set to start next week. Uh, the the activity that we saw on Monday had to do with a judge ruling on a great number of pre-trial motions from Bannon. So let's, well, I, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> this has become an extremely tangled situation thanks to the game that Bannon has been playing, I think, unsuccessfully. So the background here, of course, is that Bannon uh, 
was held in contempt of Congress, indicted, I think, in November 2021 for essentially refusing to hand over documents and come in to testify in front of the committee. Uh, his grounds for saying that was that executive privilege prevented him from doing so. Now, you might ask, what executive privilege? Great question. Bannon was a podcaster at the time of January 6th. As far as we know, OLC has not yet weighed in on whether podcasters enjoy executive privilege. It's also not clear whether Trump... We, so presumably, we argue that they do, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, look, leave it to the OLC, record. man. They'll get there eventually. Um, <laughs> so it's also not clear whether or not Trump actually invoked executive privilege. Uh, I should say I'm being a little flippant here. There are John, Our colleague Jonathan David Schaub has gone into that there are some arguments that folks outside the executive branch could potentially have privilege in conversations with the president, but I don't think Bannon that is really the case here. Um, so the long and the short of it is that Bannon has been trying to argue that he he acted uh, based on the advice of his counsel, based on this set of OLC memos about the scope of executive privilege, and, and thought in good faith that he did not have to provide this material. The rulings that came down on Monday were really a route for him on that front. So the judge ruled that Bannon's only defense really is that uh, he can argue that he misunderstood the due date of the subpoena or thought it had been extended, which I, I don't think that he had argued previously. Um, it also ruled, the judge also ruled that he can't challenge the composition of the select committee because, our, on the, which he'd, he'd challenged on the grounds that uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy hadn't appointed anyone. Um, so th there are a number of other rulings, but the bottom line is really that this was just pretty brutal. Um, for Bannon's defense to the to the point that uh, Bannon's lawyer, David Schoen, at one point said, and I quote, what is the point in going to trial here if there are no defenses? Uh, which I think is a, a great question that Bannon maybe should have considered before he defied the subpoena. So all of that is a really long wind up to kind of get us up to speed on the Bannon situation. I, for one, would not expect him to, to see him testify in public in front of the select committee. I think that there's been some reporting indicating that this, this may have been uh, uh, a, an idea that, that came to him, perhaps not just because the, the prospect of some time in prison for contempt of Congress seemed unappealing, but also because Trump is mad that nobody is kind of defending him before the committee. The committee has been so unbelievably tight and regimented in how it's presented evidence that I find it pretty hard to believe that they would want Bannon, much less Stuart Rhodes, to kind of come up there like a loose cannon and, um, you know, introduce some substantial element of, of uncertainty. Um, so my sense is that this is kind of the end of the road for Bannon. I mean, the, the judge is not going to continue the trial. It's set to go to trial next week. Um, and it seems like he doesn't have many defenses left. Quinta, the, so first of all, th 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 thank you for that um, that overview. I think I, I think I finally understand what is going on in this, despite having tried to read like seven articles of preparation for this segment. Um, I, I am curious, though, for your thoughts on why the judge ruled um, the, the sort of the specific way that he did on some of these arguments from Bannon. The 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 rejection of Bannon's attempt to argue that the committee is improperly constituted, that makes a certain intuitive sense to me, just because traditionally, right, Congress really gets to do whatever it wants to do uh, in terms of its own procedures. And um, so I can totally see why the judge would not be interested in Bannon trying to... Um, <clears throat> 
make that argument to the jury. Um, I, I will say I was a little surprised. Um, and my sense is that Roger Parloff, who was live tweeting this uh, for, for Lawfare, um, was also somewhat surprised that the judge gave such short shrift to the idea that, well, Bannon thought that based on OLC precedent, you know, which is pretty expansive, um, that, uh, you know, he did not have to comply with these subpoenas. I mean, do, do you have a sense of why the judge refused to let Bannon raise that? I mean, my, you know, was it just about you know, the, the, the circuit precedent at, at issue or, or did the judge sort of really believe that that would be sort of inappropriate um, for, for Bannon to raise to, to the jury? Because, you know, as, as you point out, and as Bannon's own lawyer points out, I mean, that leaves Bannon with basically nothing. I mean, I, I would not be surprised if this all ends in a plea agreement immediately, because what does he have to argue at this point? Right. It's a great question, and, and I, I don't know. Um, I'll definitely recommend Roger's writing on the Bannon case and his his tweet thread from from yesterday to listeners. He's been following this much more closely than, than I have. Um, certainly, it does seem like the judge was pointing to circuit precedent that he he felt was binding here. Um, so he points to a, a case, U.S. v. Licavoli in the D.C. Circuit, um, and said, according to Roger, that uh, this is Judge Carl Nichols. I have serious reservations with that holding, but I'm bound by Licavoli and its holdings. So that's kind of it. Um, I mean, I, if frankly, if I were the jury or if I were in the jury pool, I would feel quite relieved because, uh, you know, the prospect of the jury having to sort through those OLC memos, uh, seems pretty grim. Although of course there are enough lawyers in DC that maybe, you know, there, <laughs> there, there would be enough lawyers in the jury to, to help them figure out what on earth was, was going on. Um, but I, I mean, I do wonder whether at this point this does end in a, a plea. There's some pretty funny stuff if you go back and look at Bannon's kind of bombastic rhetoric when he was first uh, indicted, saying that this was going to be, you know, the the misdemeanor prosecution from hell. He was going to drag Nancy Pelosi in front of the court. He was going to totally upend what the committee is doing. And it just seems like he's kind of fallen flat on his face here. So I, I don't know, to go back to your original question, you know, precisely what the, the contours of the judge's reasoning uh, were because it was a bench ruling on on these specific questions, but you know it really does seem like he was not sympathetic to Bannon here at all. So, so then do do we think or do you think that you know it, it, Bannon might then decide to testify or you know cooperate at this late stage with the January sixth committee just on the pure instrumental goal of getting, you know, leniency or something when he pleads guilty? Or or do you think these things are fundamentally unrelated? I don't know. Um, I mean, he doesn't seem to have been particularly interested <laughs> uh, before. I have seen some suggestion um, on Twitter that, you know, one way for the committee to play it might be to demand uh, the documents from him to, to go back because he, he, uh, refused to comply with both subpoena for documents and a subpoena for testimony uh, to go back, demand that subpoena for documents um, and basically see if he is actually willing to play ball um, before going straight to the in-person testimony. So that might be one approach. Um, I mean, I can also see, you know, they might say at this point, you know, we don't need this guy. He's more trouble than he's worth. Um, We've made our point um, and we're just not going to deal with him. Yeah, I mean, I I have a theory as to what Bannon's trying to do here. Um, I'm not 100% sure either. Um, But uh, 
one issue that came up in these motions is an effort by Bannon to try and get DOJ to disclose the reasons why it is not pursuing the prosecution of Scavino and Meadows, despite being like in some along some variables, not all uh, similarly situated to Bannon, right? Like refusing to participate or engage with the January 6th committee. Uh, And there's clearly an effort to try and draw an argument saying, well, Bannon is in the same bucket as these people. Why are they being treated differently? Now, Bannon is not in the same bucket as those people. There's a lot of ways to distinguish it, including that Bannon was not in the White House uh, at the time of most of this. These issues are you know, at play. So the claim of executive privilege is much weaker or any relevant claim there. But one factor that we suspect, or at least I suspect, went into the discussions within DOJ about whether to prosecute Scavino and Meadows is the fact that they actually, uh, you know, to some extent, did cooperate with the committee, at least superficially. They had discussions about means of cooperation. Meadows, of course, did hand over a set of emails. There was some things that they could point to to suggest there was a good faith effort to cooperate. Um, uh, uh, That didn't exist as clearly in the Bannon case, because Bannon basically, uh, is my understanding, didn't reply. I think that's why you see the judge really referring back to these basic deadlines from the committee uh, during this this back and forth with Bannon's lawyer about like, well, you know, how might what defense am I supposed to be lodging? And he makes the point that like, look, you had a deadline to respond by. Um, and so I think this is Bannon kind of trying to take a few steps back and, and, and take a mulligan on this decision to completely not engage the January 6th committee. Putting this offer forward and saying, look, I'm willing to talk about engaging in some sort of testimony Here's some of my conditions. And again, I think the scope of that testimony is really unclear from the statements that that he's brought forward and that Trump has brought forward, uh, even though Trump's you know, account of executive privilege, at least according to his lawyer, is much narrower than what Bannon has suggested it is, could be a, a step in that direction. The idea that DOJ may be less inclined to continue to pursue this, this prosecution if they can muddy the water around whether Bannon was willing to cooperate or not. Because DOJ's decision to go forward with this prosecution while it's not a decision that's directly made by the Office of Legal Counsel, obviously it bears on DOJ's broader policy in these sorts of circumstances. Um, now, I think that's a little bit of a Hail Mary um, because DOJ has already gone this far and the odds of them, I think, reversing course over something, this sort of like late offer is pretty low. Obviously, like Bannon is in contempt of Congress because it refused to participate up until now <laughs> and so can still be prosecuted even if he were to testify tomorrow. Um, but, you know, that's maybe most of what Bannon has left. And 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 clearly that is a line of defense they're interested in pursuing that I don't think is foreclosed from what Nichols has ruled on thus far. Right. So I do think it's important to note that uh, Ray Meadows and Scavino, one of the motions the judge denied yesterday was a motion by Bannon to obtain discovery about the Justice Department's declination decision about Meadows and Scavino. So that, that I think, is uh, a dead end. Um, and he also can't introduce evidence to that effect. Um it does seem like I agree that he was attempting to muddy the waters here. There was some speculation before DOJ weighed in uh, that this might complicate things. They seem to, DOJ seems to be saying, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. This is, you know, he had a deadline. He missed the deadline. He was on his podcast crowing about how he wasn't going to comply. The Them's the breaks, essentially. Um, and given just the scope of the judge's uh, rulings yesterday, I, I find it difficult um, to 
imagine how Bannon could make that defense. I mean, maybe he'll try, but it really does seem like I, I agree with you, Scott, that that is what he was trying to do here. Um, I just think he he got outplayed, frankly. Well, so I, I don't think this is a legal defense. This is a, a meta legal defense, right? I mean, it, and this is what we see Bannon and the people around Bannon do pretty savvily in a lot of different regards, although I think they're kind of realizing that these strategies are maybe reaching the end of their rope these days. It's not an effort to necessarily win in the courtroom. It's an effort to both generate public outrage and shape the public narrative about what's happening here. Um, And then through that, to put pressure on the Justice Department, on others that limit their actions or shape their actions. Um, And that's how this feeds in here. Like this motion to try and get like declination memo is wacky. That's I mean, tell Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding, my limited experience with criminal trials is that it's pretty wild to go out and say, hey, we wanted DOJ internal memos about why you chose not to prosecute somebody else, particularly because you can factually dis- like distinguish these sorts of cases. And I don't think that they made this motion with any realistic expectation they were going to get it. They're building it because they want to be able to ha- build the public case saying the Justice Department's very specifically going after Bannon because it's part of this continued deep state or, you know, democratic prosecution of people in this political movement. And that the more outrageous, the more controversial, the more, more, uh, you know, politically damaging um, they can make pursuing these prosecutions, that's the thing that's going to affect those meta incentives for how DOJ chooses to pursue it. Now, again, I think the ship is probably sailed for Bannon. I think there's a little bit of a Hail Mary. But I also think it enters into the calculus for DOJ for, you know, future prosecutions it may pursue, including going to Trump. Um, uh, so I don't think it's I think it's still part of what they're these people are doing, whether, you know, coordinatedly or more likely, frankly, kind of parallel reasoning or independently. Again, we saw Stuart Rhodes make a really similar offer last week. And like why it's Stuart Rhodes saying he does it in his kind of self-righteous way that he like kind of approaches things as the founder of the Oath Keepers. And he says, hey, look, I'll, I'm willing to testify, but you got to let me do it publicly. That's a crazy thing for January 6th committee to do. Of course, they're never going to do it. But by forcing them to say no, he can start spinning this narrative saying, well, I was willing to testify. And the January 6th committee is just afraid of letting somebody else have the mic. They're trying to shape this narrative and what they're telling you isn't true. And this, to me, reads a lot like that sort of effort. Not a legal defense as much as using legal processes to shape those broader political narratives and change the incentives around what the government's doing. Oh, I completely agree. I just don't think it's going to work. Oh, I agree with that too. <laughs> uh, but but you know, but it does make things a little more painful for DOJ potentially. Um, but I, not that much more painful in this case. Like Bannon's just a, a harder case. But you know, he did see DOJ balk at Scavino and Meadows, and like that opens the line for him to say, like, well, here's one avenue we might have a defense. If DOJ hadn't balked there. Um, you know, frankly, we would have seen Pice Scavino and Meadows making these arguments and Bannon would have been even further up the creek without a paddle. So from from domestic terrorism to domestic terrorism, let's talk about our third topic. Domestic terrorism goes international. Uh, so as Scott mentioned at the top of the show, uh, last week, the FBI director, Chris Ray participated in an unusual and very interesting joint press conference with his uh, British counterpart, Uh, Kevin McCullum, who is the head of MI5, um, in which Ray warned that domestic terror cases are increasingly taking on an international component. Uh, In particular, uh, racist or neo-Nazi ideology 
is very popular on the internet, as is sadly all things are popular on the internet, and that it increasingly flows across borders as extremists and would-be terrorists all sort of egg each other on. Um, there are a depressing number of examples of this. Maybe most recently is the uh, the Buffalo shooter, um, who in May killed ten black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. And he apparently was inspired by the 2019 Christchurch attack on uh, two mosques that killed more than more than 50 people. And in fact, if you look at the Christchurch attacker, uh, that person was himself inspired by uh, events that happened outside of uh, New Zealand. So. Um, Quinta, I, I want to start with you, and I want to start with the role of the internet and, and social media, right? As uh, to, to quote your Arbiters of Truth co-host, uh, Evelyn Duick, right? Everything is a content moderation problem. Um, and I think this is a nice example of, of that, potentially. You know, is what we're seeing in the increasing internationalization of domestic terrorism just a kind of predictable consequence of social media's attempt to create one giant global community? I'm not sure I would go that far, but it does seem difficult to disaggregate, right? And and again, I mean, I think it's always difficult when we have these conversations, you know, we have to keep in mind people communicated before the internet, they passed uh, information to one another before the internet, that information was often bad. So of course, the, the famous example of this is the the Turner Diaries, a sort of far right extremist, I think white supremacist American novel that was kind of passed around as Samizdat of a sort in, in uh, white extremist circles in the United States, which well predates the internet. But what, you know, what the web allows is it allows this information to spread uh, much more easily. It's easier to access it. It's easier to communicate with and find other people who are interested in it. Um, and so it does seem difficult to untangle the role of the internet from the fact that, you know, the shooter in Buffalo was inspired by the shooter in Christchurch, who was inspired by uh, Anders Breivik, the uh, Norway uh, attacker, um, who himself was inspired by sort of a mix of ideologies that he assembled from, you know, sources outside Norway. Um, and it it's a genuinely difficult problem. And to be fair, I mean, look, platforms have done a lot since Christchurch to try to better position themselves to respond to these kinds of things, but it's really hard. And we saw that in the aftermath of the Buffalo shooting, if, if you recall, there was a uh, video of the shooting. Uh, there was the the manifesto written by the killer. Platforms were sort of doing their best to take it down under some procedures that were uh, more broadly implemented after Christchurch when there were similar difficulties came up, but it, it wasn't that effective. And partly that's because it's technologically, it's just really complicated. Um, and I, I do think that this just points to kind of the the difficulty of living in a interconnected world. I mean, I was struck reading about uh, this press conference by Christopher Ray and Ken McCallum, who's the director of MI5, how similar it actually seemed to a, a Lawfare shout out, a piece we ran uh, on Lawfare after the Christchurch uh, shooting by, um, among other people, uh, Nick Rasmussen, who who used to run the National Counterterrorism Center, along with uh, Joshua Geltzer and, and Mary McCord, um, writing about the how you know what we once thought of as domestic terrorism is now international, and writing about what the government would need to do in order to address this. So one of the suggestions was uh, expanding the mission of the National Counterterrorism Center (NCTC). Um, 
more more broadly. Um, I, I don't believe that that's happened unless I really missed it. Um, so you know, I'm I'm glad that Ray and and MI5 are are thinking about this, but it the the story did give me a bit of pause and kind of making me wonder, you know, is this really new? Maybe it's just, you know, gotten to a point where they want to bring attention to it and want to make clear that the these law enforcement agencies are looking at the problem. Um, but it it did raise my eyebrows a little. Scott, I'm 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 curious for for your thoughts on on sort of a related question, which is whether you think that that if as a actual matter, um, the line between what is quote unquote domestic and quote unquote international terrorism is harder to maintain, at least as we investigate these different incidents, is the legal distinction that is so central in American law. I mean, to the extent that, you know, for example, um, there is no actual substantive crime of domestic terrorism that, uh, that, um, you know, you can be you can be punished for in the way that there is for international terrorism. Should we just get rid of this distinction entirely and just call terrorism terrorism and just not worry about whether it's you know coming from inside the house, uh, as it were? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's as easy to get rid of that distinction because a lot of the law enforcement tools and intelligence tools and other tools that had, were developed in the post 9-11 era to help combat and prevent really terrorism, um, particularly international terrorism, were developed around a certain conception of how constitutional rights apply, um, which is a much more limited vision of how constitutional rights apply, uh, that would be hard to extend them domestically in many cases. The clearest example to all of this is economic sanctions. Um, Economic sanctions are premised on a law, the National Emergency Economic Powers Act, that requires a nexus, a foreign nexus, um, but just a nexus. Like You can apply that law to domestic organizations, individuals, and assets, as long as there's some sort of foreign interest in them that also poses a threat to national security or the global or the US economy. Um, so it wouldn't be hard to draw that sort of tie here. We actually saw in the in the first decade after the 9-11 attacks, actually an effort to apply it domestically to a variety of groups, particularly different types of Islamic charities that authorities argued were tied to international terrorist groups, particularly Hamas being the, the specific one. Not So not directly related to kind of Al-Qaeda, um, but a separate political thread with a terrorism nexus that um, authorities were pursuing. A lot of these efforts were challenged under constitutional vision. They, they created litigation that Treasury Department was uncomfortable with. They had to implement a lot of responsive measures uh, that provi- provided more procedural protections, other measures. But ultimately, they were mostly upheld, like overwhelmingly. Um, and for that reason, um, you know, they really present a pretty powerful toolkit. Now, if you were to extend that to domestic entities, you know, I think there's a little bit of a question as to whether, frankly, you could in the first instance or with withstand constitutional scrutiny being applied with any sort of density to strictly domestic entities. But to me, that's why this like internationalization and the recognition of it by authorities is actually kind of notable, because the more you see at least domestic groups begin to engage with international groups, the more, frankly, you can bring these tools to bear within our U.S. legal system, and the precedents are actually pretty strong that they can still apply. I think that's going to be politically controversial because, you know, frankly, like 
you know, the Islamic charities in the post 9-11 era were socially marginalized. I think that's actually the real problem with a lot of these policies. It really chilled a lot of legitimate speech behavior by, you know, a religious community that was feeling a lot of public pressure and a lot of other dimensions and, and didn't deserve to be treated that way. Um, uh, but here, you know, this is going to be applied to part of our political spectrum that increasingly has voiced domestically and has ties to our mainstream politics in various regards. And, and that means it's going to be politically hard to apply these things. I think they're increasingly legally available the more you see these little lines to these foreign terrorist groups. In fact, we've already seen some groups like the Russian imperial movement um, be designated under various terrorist regimes that were intended for international terrorism, are used for international terrorism, and are now being applied to these groups that historically have had some ties to kind of domestic right-wing groups. And so it opens up this whole new bucket of potential tools that the check is not legal so much as um, political in terms of how broadly you can apply them. The difficulty here, the, the cases that we're talking about, about you know Christchurch and the Buffalo shooting uh, and the, the other shootings that have come into play here, and that were a big focus of the speech, the trick there is that those are look to be, I don't think we know 100% for all the cases yet, but they look to be like what we used to call, I think still do call in the international terrorism context, lone wolf cases, right? These are cases where an individual was motivated and incentivized by information they found online without direct coordination or without organizations engaging in economic or other engagements that are susceptible to these sorts of tools. So these still present like a big difficulty. That was also true in international terrorism. Like lone wolf cases were always the hardest case and the case that counterterrorism officials always said, man, these are the ones we like don't know what to do about because we have First Amendment protections that make speech available. We can't and nobody really wants to get rid of those or diminish those. Um, you know, uh, there is a platform moderation question, um, but there are inevitably platform channels by which you can kind of get some of the stuff eventually and people are going to act on it and they don't, you know, they can access guns their own in, their, in our country. And once they can do that, like they can execute on these things. And so I don't know if those tools really make a big difference in these cases, but insofar as you're seeing the efforts to build a global community or interactions between these nationalist groups in different countries, the extreme right-wing groups, and not all nationalists, but using that as kind of descriptor, like that makes them able to target in a way that we are gotten very good at in the post 9-11 era. But to an extent that, again, is going to raise really hard political questions domestically for, for a lot of people. Although personally, I don't have a huge problem with beginning to explore some of these tools and, and level them because there is an actual genuine you know, transnational threat, in my view, in this, in this area. Yeah, I mean, for, for what it's worth, my, my view is that the distinction between domestic and international terrorism as a actual matter is not particularly useful, but that as a legal matter, it is inevitable um, especially given the sort of giant international terrorism legal and bureaucratic framework that we developed after 9-11. And so if what it takes for law enforcement to deal with domestic terrorism more seriously, um, either to be convinced to deal with it more seriously or just to be able to, to have the tools and resources at its disposal, um, is the framing uh, or finding within what we would traditionally call domestic terrorism an international component as kind of a hook, I think that's I think that's fine, um, and I think this is one of these areas where kind of some analytic imprecision is is worth the uh, practical improvement in the government's ability to uh, to take a, a hard line against um, you know quote unquote domestic terrorism, um, even if it has to recast it a little bit as international terrorism. Well, folks, we are unfortunately at the end of our time, meaning we will have to leave the conversation there for now. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you 
with some object lessons to think about and ponder over the course of this coming week. Alan, let me hand it over to you to share our first object lesson. So my object lesson, and again, I am just, I, I am the guy whose object lessons are all spy television shows. So I have a new spy television show, everyone, which is excellent. It's called uh, The Old Man. Uh, it is a uh, FX show, though you can stream it on Hulu because who has cable anymore? Um, it stars Jeff Bridges as a former CIA operative whose uh, past comes to, you know, comes to haunt him at the ripe old age of, I think he's in his 70s, both the actor and the uh, the character, though that does not prevent him from kicking a lot of ass in like, uh, you know, kind of charming grandfatherly way. Uh, John Lithgow, who's just amazing, um, plays the kind of high level FBI official who has a a past with him and is now trying to, to catch him. Um, and uh, and um, uh, Alia Shaukat, who uh, played maybe uh, on uh, Arrested Development and is a wonderful, wonderful actor and I think is uh, sadly kind of underused in, in Hollywood and on TV, uh, plays a very important role. I will not say more about what the role is because then I'd be giving away some spoilers. Um, but it is a great, uh, great bingeable spy show. I highly recommended The Old Man. I think it's worth it just to see the Big Lebowski engage in some action sequences. I yeah, love the dude, the dude so abides, much. and he Great. also kicks ass, as it turns out. Amazing, amazing. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I have uh, something from uh, 1880. So the Atlantic uh, has put all of its archives on its website for subscribers, which I think is an incredible idea, and I'm so glad that they did it. Um, there are many, many little treasures waiting to be discovered. One that I came across is a, an article by Mark Twain from the June 1880 issue of The Atlantic entitled A Telephonic Conversation. Uh, Charlie Wurzel, who writes a newsletter for The Atlantic, described this as a, an old style gadget review, which is exactly what it is. Um, and it opens, I consider that a conversation by telephone when you are simply sitting by and not taking any part in that conversation is one of the solemnest curiosities of this modern life. And Twain goes on to describe an interaction where he hears a woman having a, a call on the telephone and finds it you know, deeply absurd in the ways that telephone calls, of course, always kind of are, uh, but that is perhaps more initially apparent in 1880 when the entire concept of a phone call is a new development. So highly recommended. It's a delightful little piece of, of humor writing. Could do without some of the sexism, but that's okay. It's 1880. Um, and more generally would just recommend spelunking and the Atlantic archives. There's some really delightful stuff in there and I plan to spend some time sorting through it. Oh, I love it. I'm really excited. I, I saw that that got opened up to subscribers uh, in the last few weeks, and I am excited to uh, dig through it a little bit myself. Um, well, for my object lesson this week, I am sharing an article uh, I came across by Lee Baldwin and Sean Williams entitled Follow the Leader. It is an Atavist magazine, uh, which is a great publication for kind of long form nonfiction writing. I think it's entirely nonfiction, although I guess I could be wrong. It could be, uh, there might be fiction as well, um, associated with long reads. Uh, and it is a phenomenal, uh, long investigated piece about how Vladimir Putin played this role as a relatively young intelligence officer in engaging with a 
uh, communist spy, a spy for communist Russia that he was handling, who was himself involved in basically founding and really setting the foundation for Germany's revivalist neo-Nazi movement. Um, it's a fascinating story, particularly if you followed Russia's engagement with, you know, right-wing extremist groups uh, over the course of Putin's tenure, and particularly in the last ten years or so, because you see all these sorts of echoes from his prior experience uh, now being made aspects of national policy. Or at least that's how I read it. Uh, it is a phenomenally well done piece. Really interesting. Uh, I always think atavists and long reads have really interesting stuff. And I, I don't check them as regularly as I should, because every time I find something, I'm like, oh, man, I need to put this on my regular, uh, regular look them up and see what they're up to list. Um, so I strongly recommend folks check that out. Again, it is called Follow the Leader uh, in Atavist Magazine, the most recent issue. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of our other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our special series on the January 6th investigation, The Aftermath. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited this week by the wonderful team at Goat Rodeo. On behalf of my co-hosts, Quinta and Alan, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye! up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com <laughs> 